Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Three hundred horses come pounding over big, heavy horses, and it's you just think, my God, this is just a tiny fraction of what it must have really felt like, you know. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. James Cosmo is British acting royalty and has a story for almost every occasion. From playing the old battler Campbell in Braveheart, Lord Commander Mormont in Game of Thrones, Father Christmas in Narnia, and even a fighter pilot in Battle of Britain. He's done it all. This is a story about a story man. AG1 are on board again with this week's episode, so make sure you support the podcast and your health by making the most of the offer you get as a listener to this podcast. I take AG1 every morning, and it's the best way to make sure that you're getting all the nutrition that your body craves. AG1 replaces your multivitamin, probiotic, and more in one simple drinkable habit. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. That's drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. Check it out. I hope you enjoy the episode. James Cosmo, thanks for coming on the show. Great pleasure, Andy. Thank you. We were just chatting off here about your whiskey launch. Oh, my God. Andy, your business partner, he gives me a call and he goes, we've got this launch, come along. It's at a private members club. You can't wear jeans, but because it's so hot, you don't have to wear a jacket. It was around 35 degrees, I think. So I thought, okay, I'll wear shorts. That's fine. So I've rocked up, and everyone else, of course they are, they're dressed up fully to the nines. It's a red carpet event. There's a red carpet. There's a bagpiper playing. Some of the biggest names in British film are there, and then so am I in my shorts. It was a good event. It <laughs> yeah, great it was great event. fun. It was good. Yeah, how, we got a really nice, nice mix of folk. It was how, great. How is the whiskey going? It's going really well as far as I believe, yeah. Yeah, it's early days, um, but um, we're, we're very hopeful it's going gonna, it's gonna, to hit the mark and uh, people will enjoy it because it's a blended whiskey. It's not cheap, but I can honestly say that uh, Keith, the guy that blended it, you know, it's not a celebrity endorsement. That's, that's the main thing about it. You know, I've, I've been involved with my business partner, Andy, for nearly three years coming up, um, getting this onto the market, you know, and working with Annandale Distillery and producing this whiskey. And Keith, the guy who blended it, um, God, he's, it's incredible. He, he's such a nose. And we just refined it and refined it and refined it. And it's, you know, if you like blended whiskey as I do, it's the best I've ever tasted. Mm. And it's exactly what I want, you know. It's not peaty. Uh, it's um, it's very smooth drinking whiskey. It's, it's a whiskey you want to, it's sipping whiskey as they call it yeah. in America. Yeah, I thought it was kind of similar to Lefrog, but Lefrog is quite a bit different, isn't it? Well, that's that's a lovely comparison. 
Um, because, you know, when you have a, a, a dram of that, you know, you, the, there's no burning it. It's like drinking yeah, honey. So you know, it's, it's lovely. One of the things that I love about whiskey is that when I'm trying to brainstorm podcast ideas on who I'm going to get on and things like that, I love just getting a glass of whiskey on the rocks because I don't know what it is. I'm not a scientist or anything like that, but it does. I feel like it helps with my creativity and focus. Do you, do you, have, do you have it with ice? No. Don't you no, do a teaspoon of water. That's what my old man does. Just enough to, to release the, the oils in it, you know. Is that what the water does? Yeah, yeah, it just improves the, the overall. But just a tiny, you know, sometimes you use people and uh, use a little pipette of water, you know, like half a dozen drops, just enough just to get it going. And uh, I just think whiskey should be drunk at, at room temperature. I just, I don't like the idea of ice, you know, because it's, it's diluting the drink as you go along, you know. Okay, so from now on, I'm only going to drink it with a couple of drops of water, no ice. With putting Story Man together, you were part of that process, weren't you, like doing all the tastings and things? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a, uh, it, it started off, Andy, as um, I, I was talking with my business partner, Andy Pancholi, and I wanted something that, you know, like when you finish a film or a, a series or something, you, you want to... You know, people give each other books and all that sort of stuff. I wanted something really personal, yeah. you know, to say, you know, when you have this, remember me, you know. And uh, I said to, I'd been to Annandale Distillery, which is down in the borders of Scotland. Uh, I'd been there two or three years before when I we just finished The Outlaw King uh, with Chris Pine. Great flick. Yeah. And they'd... they'd um, they were hoping to do a whiskey called Outlaw King. Uh, that didn't happen because of legal reasons. Uh, but I'd, I'd gone up to Annandale, met David Thompson, that owns the place. The lovely folk, you know, it's a real sort of um, boutique distillery and in, in a lovely location. And I said to Andy, maybe you should give them a call sometime. So Andy's Indian and uh, it was New Year's Day Um he wasn't doing anything, so he, he thought, I'll leave a message on the answer phone. So he phoned up, and and the managing guy answered. Uh, and he was half Indian as well. That's why he was at work. And uh, so from there, they had about like a three-hour conversation. And then we sort of discovered that, you know, it was a bit bigger than, than I'd initially thought, and it just grew like topsy from there. Isn't there some importance on where it's distilled? Something to do with Robert the Bruce? Yeah, Robert the Bruce, um, uh, he had land all around there, as well as different parts of Scotland. You know, he was a nobleman. He, he owned lots of Scotland. So, yeah, that, that was part of his homeland. And also Robert Burns. Um, you could walk just about to where Robert Burns, our national poet, lived. You know, so they, they've made two other whiskies, one called Man of Sword that was dedicated to Robert Bruce and another one, Man of Words, which is dedicated to Robert Burns. Um, so I, I just thought there was, was a lovely synchronicity there, you know, yeah. and I thought I'd like my whiskey to come from there. And it, it did. It just it, it happened. You know, It was so cool at the launch with the big Scottish promo. You could feel everyone in the room just getting pumped up about it. It was like it was real Braveheart vibes. How did you get that part? Does Mel Gibson just flick you a message asking you to come on the show? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, it's an interesting 
genesis of, of, of the film itself, you know, because Randall Wallace had, had written it. Um, he had been on holiday in Scotland. Uh, he'd been up at Stirling, saw uh, the, the Wallace Monument, uh, heard about the Battle of Stirling Bridge, um, and he, he was inspired to write this story uh, about Wallace. And I think he punted it around Hollywood for a couple of years, and Mel had seen it and 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 thought, yeah, it's interesting. But he'd, you know, he, his workload was so big. He said, and Mel told me that it, it just kept kept coming back to him, back and back. And eventually, he decided to do it. And the only way that he could actually um, get the movie made was if he played Wallace, because. Mel Gibson in a film makes a big difference, you know. Uh, so that's what was that's what happened. And I'd been up for they call it a general meeting um, uh, about six months before, and I just met Mel for ten minutes in London, and uh, I'd forgotten all about it, you know. Another meeting about some film he might or might not make. So my wife and I, my first son was just born and we we're living in a, a one-bedroom flat in, in uh, Twickenham. And uh, I hadn't been working in a while. So my wife was working at the BBC. I was looking after the baby, all that sort of stuff. And uh, it was the, the one treat of the week was a curry on a Saturday night, you know. And in those days, you you know, you just watched what was on TV and uh, there was a late night film on. And uh, so the curry had arrived. I was sitting in the one chair that we had and Annie brought the curry over. And I thought, I said, this is about, oh, great. Whatever the film was. And the phone rang. It was 20 to 11 at night. And I said to her, I knew it was my friend Dominic. And uh, I said, tell, tell that I'll be Dom. I said, tell him I'm, I'm not coming. Because he's probably phoning up to see if I was coming out for a last pint on Saturday night. And I said, tell him I'll see him tomorrow. And I want to eat my curry. So Annie went, yeah, sure. And she went over and she answered the phone. And she went, hello. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she covered it over and said, there. I said, what are you doing? I'm eating my curry. Tell him phone him tomorrow. And she said, it's Mel Gibson. I went, oh, don't be so. I thought, it's Dominic. He's, I lifted the phone and said, Hello. This voice said, "Hey, Jimmy," <laughs> and I said, ah, "Is that Dom?" And he went, "No, it's Mel." And I thought, "Oh my God, it really is!" And he said he'd been watching my show reel, and he said, "Do you want to come and play Campbell?" And I said, "I'd love to play Campbell." And he said, "Great, see you next week. Goodbye." And that was it. Boom, done. Yes. Yeah, and it's such an iconic role as well. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a, it was a joy to play. I bet it was fun because you guys were all outdoors the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what 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 can be better, Andy, than you know, you're you're filming. We filmed most of it in Ireland, um, you know. But to ride round in horses all day, um, pretend to be tough guys, <laughs> uh, do big fight scenes, or for for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, you know. And there was no CGI, um, or a very tiny bit. It was in its infancy then. Um, but we uh, on the big days with three and a half thousand extras there, you know, two hundred, three hundred horses. Uh, it was amazing. It was just incredible. It was a beautiful summer, 
it was just glorious. What a dream. And with the beautiful summer that we did have, did you have to make sure that you didn't tan? Because that wouldn't have looked very Scottish. We were covered in so much blood oh, and blue stuff. <laughs> it didn't really matter. With the, with the fight scene. With Mel Gibson riding up and down on his horse, shouting at his army, is that actually how it happened for you on set? Is that what you guys saw? Because... That is about the most fired up anyone can get watching a movie. When you're watching that scene, there's probably not many other scenes in any other movies where you can actually get that pumped up. Were you guys getting fired up actually during the filming when it was happening? It was it was extraordinary, you know, and that was early on when we first came to Ireland, when that sort of iconic scene of um, him in front of his army, you know. And it, it was, it was, it was astonishing and the we the extras were all from the irish territorial army so they were all they'd really get wound up by it all they just loved it to bits you know and it was it was fantastic you know because you get just a slight tingle of what it must have been really like Mm. you know with all these people you know and someone saying come to battle you know this is it you know and then you know when you could feel the you know, the big spears that they had, the Schultrons, you know, and the English army are galloping and you, you feel the ground shake as 300 horses come pounding over, big heavy horses. And it's, you just think, my God, this is just a tiny fraction of what it must have really felt like, you know. So you actually had 300 heavy horses charging at you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Luckily they stopped. <laughs> At what point do they stop? How, I mean, how close are they allowed to get? When they had to cut, and then they had a, they had various things like um, they had dummy horses on hydraulic rams that ran right up to the the Scottish army. Um, so they would put stuntmen on the, you know, maybe every every four or five horses there would be a a dummy horse with a stuntman on it, oh. and you know, so you'd have the real horses mixed in with the dummy horses. And then we had uh, a couple of Spanish stunt riders um, who could drop the horses on a postage stamp. They were just amazing. Oh, they just really? touched them, and the, the horses were real, like real actors. You know, they really made the most of it, and they would throw themselves up and crash down onto uh, sort of padded ground. You know, it was there were cardboard boxes buried in the ground and covered in tough. But the horses trusted the riders so much they knew they weren't going to get hurt. And that just, when it all happened together, you know, the, the dummy horses crashed into the end of the ram. They went spiralling over, the, the stuntmen went over, horses crashing down, and it all happened at once, you know. Amazing <laughs> choreography of action. And what are you told, just to stand there? Yeah, just stand still, yeah. <laughs> Don't get in the way. <laughs> There's one line in Braveheart that I've never been able to work out what they're saying. When It's that scene when Wallace gets revenge against the British for killing his wife. After the battle, there's a chant that you start for Wallace. Macaulay is Gaelic for Wallace. And they wanted to change, you know, he says Macaulay, Macaulay. And then it changes to Wallace, Wallace. But McEolish is, is Gaelic, Scottish Gaelic for Wallace. Ah, is that what they're saying? It is McCulloch. You've just solved one of my life riddles. They just wanted it to transition to Wallace. I love that movie. You've been in so many cracking films. But like, it, it didn't start off that easy for you, did it? Because at one point you were even on the streets. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I left school and I, I worked in a shipbreakers on Clydeside. Um, you know, they, they built the ships in Clydeside and they, there was a place called Arnott Young's where they would take in the old ships and they broke them down uh, for scrap. And that was a sort of Dickensian piece of work. So I decided after about eight months that it really wasn't for me. And I hitchhiked down to London when I was about 17, late 17s. I didn't, I didn't live on my own for long, you know. Eventually made friends and shared flats with people. But the first few weeks, you know, you had to look after yourself and take bird baths. And when you're that age, you're, you're not, nothing scares you. You know, it's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm getting on with things. Yeah. You, know? you must have been pretty confident that you were going to crack acting. No, I knew I was gonna. I was gonna do something. I wasn't, you know. I was hoping that acting would have been my route, you know. But hard times are all relative. I was never really, really hungry, you know. If you, if you got something to eat during the day, that was, that was enough, you know. There's a lot of people that, you know, that's that's an impossibility. That's mm. tough. Mm. Um, so it's all relative, and uh, as I say, when you're that age, you're, you know, nothing scares you. Yeah, because you came from acting stock. Your dad was mates with Sean Connery, wasn't he? Yeah, I remember because we came down before when I was um, when I was eight. My father was in in London, and we lived in a tenement in Clyde Bank. And my father got a, a job on the stage in a, a farce called Sailor Beware, which they knew was going to run for quite a long time. It ended up he was on that that show for about three years. But he sent my mother some money and said, come down to London. And he thought she was going to take the, the, tr- the train or the coach at that time and bring us down, you know, like, and, you know, just take a day. Um, but my mother was, was uh, she was a really adventurous soul. And the, she went out with this money and she bought a gypsy uh, bow wagon, you know, the canvas you know, like the canvas top wagon. And yeah, like a wagon. Yeah. And then the next day she went down to the fish market and she bought a horse, a grey, um, called Bobby. She bought him and then she put me and my sister, Laura, and her best friend, Elizabeth, and the four of us travelled all the way down from Glasgow to London in a gypsy wagon. I've got photographs I can show you. How did she pass that message on to your dad to let him know she spent the money and she was on her way? The, the thing is, Andy, in, in those days, um, there weren't any mobile phones or anything. So when she left, she left. He didn't know where she was. <laughs> that was it. That's, that's me that you can scroll through. There's two or three there. Oh, there's you in the back. Are you, have you got a cigarette in your hand? Yeah. How old are you, six? Eight. <laughs> It was a different time. And that's Bobby? That's Bobby, yeah. And that old guy's a, uh, he was an old guy that joined us. so cool. Yeah. Oh, you had a guy that joined you? Yeah, he joined us in Dumfries. His name was Sandy. And he slept under the wagon all the way down to St. Albans. That is a great story. Yeah. I might have to get you to airdrop those. (laughs) I will do. That's such a good story. Oh, my gosh. And so you arrived down, I can't remember where we were going with that. Yeah, we came down to London, and uh, my father had a flat. And, uh, yeah, at that time, you know, he, he was in that whole acting uh, crowd. And Sean was, uh, he was in South Pacific in the chorus uh, on stage. 
so the the he and different people used to come round, you know, some Sundays, and my mother would make us a, a curry thing, uh, you know, very different a curry, but um, she would make that, and I remember playing cricket with Sean. Uh, on Hampstead Heath uh, on a Sunday afternoon, you know, really, just having fun, yeah. Well, in the same t- in a team, or just having play around with the cricket. Oh, we're just playing around, you know, but um, just out for a walk and then sort of having a knock around. But yeah, it was interesting. And then when I was eleven, my mother took us back up to Scotland, and I was back into a tournament in Clyde Bank, you know. So it was a- take the horse back up. No, um, he was he was sold. Um, when we went down, there was. Uh, there was an article in a newspaper about my mum doing this thing. And um, there was lots, I remember lots of letters from usually from little girls that wanted the horse because we said the horse has got to go. But we had a letter from a guy up north in Yorkshire somewhere. And he said that he had a small farm and he only used heavy horses. And he said, I'd be very happy to look after your horse for you and give him a, he was only about seven, he was a youngster. And uh, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll look after him. And so he went up there and he spent the rest of his life with his his buddy pulling a plough out in the oh. fresh air, you know, away from Glasgow. And we used to get Christmas cards. Oh, saying Bobby's Bobby. doing great. He's, you know. <laughs> so it was a nice end to, it was a nice part of his life, yeah. One of your earliest movies, I didn't even know you were in it until I started researching this podcast, Battle of Britain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, that was. You that. were in the Battle of Britain movie. Yeah, that was the first big. Well, it was the first movie that I ever did. Yeah. Yeah. It was extraordinary. I mean, at, at, at the time, I think it was the biggest budget movie ever. It was Harry Saltzman and Benny Fish that produced it. Yeah, I was, I was 18, and uh, they offered me the part of uh, Jamie, his name was, a flight sergeant. Yeah, so we filmed all over the place, RAF Duxford and Hyde Airport and Airfield. And uh, it was, again, it was a long, hot summer, just the same as the Battle of Britain. And I was friends with a guy called Ginger Lacey, who was one of the the technical advisors on the film because he had been an air ace in the Battle of Britain. I was going to say, I bet there were loads of actual aces. Oh, yeah, yeah, because, you know, it was at that time they were still alive, you know, they were still around. Yeah. And uh, Ginger and I, obviously a huge age, age difference, but we got on really well together. He was an awful nice guy. And uh, so he used to talk to me about it, and I found that absolutely awe-inspiring, you know, and yeah. and, and and sad and dark and, you know, it was... Because you see, you know, footage of these you know, young men, boys almost, you know, and you think how incredibly glamorous that was, you know. Mm. It was, it was, um, every day there were acts of such incredible bravery. And Ginger said, you know, that he was flying hurricanes. He said they would, they would come back after a sortie, you know, with, with bits blown off the plane and, um, some of them, as the Battle of Britain went on longer and longer, the, the the solo flying time became shorter and shorter, you know. So these young when boys... When they were training, they were getting yeah, put in, yeah, in just the go, battle quicker just and go, quicker. Get on there, go. And he said sometimes, you know, they would come back and if they hadn't been hurt but the plane had been smashed up, you know, they'd, they'd, 
they just lift them out the, the cockpit, you know, they'd maybe wet themselves or whatever, you know. And he, he said they just took them and gave them a shower, a clean uniform, a cup of sweet tea. So you sit there, wait for that bell to go again. That's your plane over there. And they did, time after time after time. Incredible bravery, cold courage, you know, not in the heat of the moment, just knowing that if they didn't do it, Britain was finished and they were willing to do it. Imagine that. Yeah. yeah. So it was such a privilege to meet guys like that, you know, just extraordinary. You can't think what they were like as young men. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful and tragic at the same time what they did. And Ginger said he stopped, he stopped making friends uh, towards the end uh, because he knew that they'd be coming up, you know, with eight hours solo. You know, that was it. Mm. Just eight hours. That's a, that's all you've got, and you're going up there. And uh, he said he knew that, you know, most of the time they, they weren't coming back. You know, they were just going to get blown out the sky. Um, it's so amazing that you got that opportunity because I, I had an uncle that fought in the RAF back in World War Two, And I was always too young growing up to ever ask him questions, to ever care. And I massively regret that now. I'd love to meet and interview someone that fought in the Battle of Britain. I remember standing, I can't remember what airfield it was, but it was near the White Cliffs of Dover. And uh, it was at lunchtime. And Ginger said, you know, he said, if it wasn't for these camera trucks uh, around... And there was a scramble hut in the distance. He said, it's exactly the same. He said, it's exactly the same. And almost on cue, we heard some engines and we couldn't see anything. He said, they're spitfires. We couldn't, couldn't see them anywhere. And then from behind us, uh, they, they were coming off the sea. Three spitfires came up, came over in a V formation and it, felt so low, you know, and you could see these guys coming over the airfield and the two wingmen spun off into victory rolls across the airfield. And I was like the noise and the, and I turned around to speak to Ginger and he had tears falling down his face. Brought it all back to him. Yeah. Man, that's so intense. Did you get to sit in any of the planes or...? No, I taxied a hurricane. That's as much as they would give me, and that's, that's as much as I wanted. <laughs> you taxied a World War II hurricane. How does that happen? You got to sit in a hurricane and just taxi it around the airport? Yeah, yeah, for like 100 yards, you know. They said, don't push that lever too much, and for whatever you do, don't touch that. <laughs> you know, so I just, I putted up to the, you know, just when you're arriving sort of thing. But that was a, a you know, because a, you know, you, you're sitting there, and I, I was uh, really slim in those days. But here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You just were jammed into this little space, you know, um, 
with a little rear view mirror, you know, like in an old car, little thing about that size. That's all you had, you know, and it was amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. And no offence, but that they let an actor drive around an actual hurricane. It was it was fantastic. And there were some big names in that movie as well. I think there was every big name was in it, you know, like all of them. Uh, They were all there. Um, Robert Shaw, Christopher Plummer, Michael Caine, Laurence Olivier. I just it goes on and on and on, you know. And what are you interacting with them? To a certain extent, uh, the late Christopher Plummer. I, I did my first scene with him at the very beginning of the film. My character comes in and does a victory roll, and he gets told off by Christopher Plummer. And um, we did that scene just before lunch, and I was really nervous, like, you know, understandably nervous. Yeah. And uh, they broke for lunch, and somebody said, just get on that coach, and it'll take you to the hangar for lunch. And I was walking to the coach, and I always remember it was a white Mercedes convertible, a big one. And Chris Plummer was sitting in the back, and he said, where are you going? And I said, I'm, I'm, I have to go for lunch on the coach. He said, no, no, he said, get in the car. And I said, no, but they said, he said, just get in the car. And we drove round to the other side of the airfield and there was a, a little marquee there. And he said, come on, come and have lunch. And I walked in and Trevor Howard sitting over there and, you know, Michael Caine sitting there. It was lovely. Oh. It, it was su- such a generous thing to do for an older actor to take a young actor that he'd just done a scene with to yeah. come and have lunch with the big boys. Yeah. So that was really lovely. It's pretty amazing because if you look at Game of Thrones, for example, you were in the first three seasons as Lord Commander Mormont. In the first season in particular, there were so many young, inexperienced actors that went on throughout the series as the series unfolded year after year to become superstars. Did you find yourself in the beginning playing a similar type mentoring role? Um, well, I, I, I don't know about that, but, but um, I mean, it's, it's for one's own benefit as well, you know, to make... You know, if for whatever reason an actor is, a young actor is uh, nervous or, or um, unsure of himself, it's, it's part of your job to, 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 to make him relax or help him relax and enjoy the experience and, mm-hmm. and take away those, you know, the, the superfluous nerves. You always need nerves when you're working. But, you know, if it's becoming too much, then you, you try and... If you're, if you're warm and welcoming, that's, that's the most important thing you know that make them uh, feel happy in their space yeah did you know early on or at at what point did you realize that these young kids were going to be superstars on game of thrones well it's funny because when we did the first season um we'd we'd finished and then i was i was in la and we had to do some adr and i met um, adr uh, the dubbing the voice you know, if the if the recording on the film isn't good enough, you have to uh, ADR it. You know, dub it over from right. a sound studio. I see, re-record it. Yeah. So I was I was doing that, and, and uh, David Benioff and Dan Weiss were the other two producers and writers. And I remember saying, because it was this old fishing buddy Bo who came down to see me, and uh, I said, what, what, do you, "What do you think about a, a second season? Do you think? Do you think? Well," and they said. Don't know. Really, don't know. <laughs> really? My goodness! It just you know, nobody, nobody really knew that it was going to be as big as it ever 
became. It was just extraordinary. Yeah, because it's, it's all those young, those young actors there. Like they must have been thinking, "Oh, we're coming in. We've got this like really cool gig that's going to, you know, I, I, it's just work. It's it's for a season." Yeah, yeah. and then boom. Yeah. Did you know at the start? Like, do you get told when you're going to get killed off? Uh, no, no. Um, I remember some actors were really, they were really pissed off when they get killed. Really? Yeah. But not I, Sean Bean. He knew. He, he must have known. No, I think I, I think Sean knew. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, isn't he got like? Isn't it like twenty five like deaths or something? Like, he yeah. gets killed off. That's yeah, it's his game. Yeah. Um, everybody knows that you're going to get it at some point, but um, yeah, I think I think Sean knew. The only way I knew was I hadn't read the books, and I just mentioned uh, Bo Bochin, um, who's an old fishing friend of mine, and uh, we fish up in the, in the Washington State fly fishing, and he doesn't. He's a bit like you. He's just a good old boy. And uh, but when he found out that I was doing Game of Thrones, he said, "Oh, James, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read these books, you know." So he did. God bless him. And uh, I remember the first time we were out, and he said, uh, "James," he said, "I just finished uh, the first book." He said, "You're still alive. You're still alive. It's great." <laughs> the second time uh, I was up a year later or whatever, and he said, "I finished the second book." Lord Mormont, he's still alive. And then the third time, he said, "James." They're drinking wine out your skull. <laughs> so I knew, oh, it's coming, it's coming. But it was a, yeah, that was cool for me. That was good. The deaths on Game of Thrones were always massive because, like, the character development was so on point. Well, it's a wonderful, it's a really clever device, you know, that the audience invests in that character. You know, they want to see where that character's going and they're following him or her all the way through it. And then, what, they're dead. They're gone. And it sort of revitalizes their interest, you know, like, so, so who, who am I going to follow now? Who's, who's, what's happening now? You know, it's a really good way of, sort of shocking people into, into a sort of renewed interest in the thing. Yeah. I mean, Kit Harrington, who played Jon Snow, he got on all right, didn't he? Because he got the best of both worlds. What was it like acting with him? Because your two characters were really close on the program, weren't they? Oh, really, really well. We had a great time. In fact, we've just got a film coming out called What Remains of Us that we did um, last year, uh, Kit and I. Um, so that was, that was nice to work with him again. But yeah, he's, he's a lovely young man, really nice guy. Yeah, because that show launched him in a massive way. Did you actually, did you keep anything from the set? No, I usually steal things quite often. I didn't, for whatever reason, I didn't steal anything from Game of Thrones. You've been on loads of movies and TV shows over the years, but did you find with Game of Thrones that it put you back in the spotlight again? Yeah, well, I think it, it hit a new audience, you know, because I was an old guy by that time. The, the audience were mainly sort of 20, 30 mm. sort of age group, you know, so I was sort of introduced to them. So it was, it was a, yeah, it was, it, it was wonderful. And yeah, I mean, I, it's weird, you know, when you're in places like you think, uh, like you're in India and you're walking down the street and someone says, Lord Mormont! <laughs> you don't realise the, the stretch of that show, you know, just shown in just about every country in the world. You know, people, you know, if I went to Moscow, people would say, oh, there's Lord Mormont. Yeah, don't go to Moscow. Things are a little bit unstable there. You mentioned India. 
You've done a bit of work in Bollywood, haven't you? I did a I did a Bollywood film. What's that like? It's a lot different to Hollywood, isn't it? I mean, it's a huge industry. It's just enormous. Um, but it's it's very different. Um, they have. Uh, I'll give you an example. The first day I arrived, we were sh- shooting in England first in London, and they said, "Oh, um, your your dressing room's here." So I went into the dressing room, and this elderly gentleman came in, sort of Indian guy, you know, dressed, you know, as, as they do there. Um, and I was sitting like this, uh, and he came over and started to undo my shoes. And I thought, what are you doing? Anyway, he took my shoes off, and then he took my socks off. And he was my dresser. But then I realized, if I say, no, it's okay, I can dress myself, I'm, I'm fine. He doesn't have a job anymore, yeah. you know? So I just had to go, okay, this is the way they do it in India. And so every morning I would go in, and I would stand there, and he'd unbutton my shirt and take it off and put the other costume shirt on, help me into my trousers, do my shoes up. That was the way it was. Like Mr. Crowley on Downton Abbey. It was fascinating. And, you know, the, the, they have so many people on the set, and they, they ADR everything. So all the actors' audio is re-recorded afterwards. So you get people talking in the background, you know, like the sparks or whatever, shouting to each other, and you're trying to do a scene. Um but it was, it was, I found it fascinating because my agent said, oh, God, there's this crazy Bollywood film that they want you to do. And I said, no, no, I want to experience that. I want to see what that's like. It's fascinating. And I worked with a, a lovely guy called Danush, who's a real huge star in India, and he was the star of the movie. I didn't actually do an Indian dance, but we, Danush and I did this... Uh, it was really weird because I play this awful gangster who murders some people and then meets with Danush and I'm covered in blood and we sing a song together. <laughs> it's, just, it's nuts because there's always got to be a song. That's so strange. Why do they do that? No idea. It's a Bollywood. There's that's always a song that's just the way it is. It. You know, that at some point, no matter what the film is, there's going to be a song and there'll be a big, you know, everyone dancing and things. That's that's what they enjoy. Good on them. Good on them. We mentioned earlier the stars that you got to hang out with on the Battle of Britain set, some of the biggest names of all time. But you've also worked alongside Brad Pitt when you're on the set of Troy. What what was he like on set? Was he like Mr. Cool with his own caravan and things? Oh, geez, yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he was a, still is one of the biggest stars in the world, you know. But I'd, I'd met him previously on... Uh, um, Emma, um, you know, the Jane Austen thing, because he, he, at that time he was with um, Gwyneth Paltrow and he he turned up on the set and uh, he'd just seen Braveheart, which he loved. So that was that was nice. He, was, he, he told me how much he enjoyed it, you know. So I met him again on, on, uh, on Troy, you know. But uh, he's one of the most uh, grounded superstars that I've ever met. Really? Yeah, very much so. Very down-to-earth guy, you know. No airs and graces about him. My wife was over with, we only had one son at that time, and we were filming in Baja, California, in Mexico. And uh, Annie, my wife, was at the pool, and 
she was talking with this lady, this American lady. The lady said, oh, my son's got an ear infection. And Annie said, she said, so is my son. I think, I think it must be the pool or something. You know? Anyway, they got talking and, and uh, the, the lady said, you're here on holiday. And Annie said, no, my husband's working in a, a movie. She said, my brother's working in a movie. It's Troy, yeah? And Annie said, yeah, that's right. Ah, she said, and uh, what is your... My wife said, uh, yeah, my husband's one of the actors on it. And she said, oh, jeez, so's my my brother's an actor. And he said, do you know what he's playing? And the lady shouted over to her mother, who's at the other side of the pool, hey, mom, she said, what part is Brad playing? (laughs) (laughs) It was, like, lovely. I think that was so sweet. Didn't you have a car accident on set there? No, that that was on, um, I did a film in Kauai. Um, That's one of the Hawaiian archipelago islands. It's the second smallest one. It's called the Garden Island. And uh, it was a a movie called To End All Wars about uh, prisoners of the Japanese in the Second World War, based on a true story. Um, But I, I played the commanding officer. Um, of this regiment that gets captured. It was with Bobby Carlyle and Kiefer Sutherland and Mark Strong. and uh, Good lads. Great guys, great guys. Kiefer especially, lovely man. Anyway, my wife had travelled in uh, again with my son. She was really jet-lagged because all the way from London to Los Angeles, Los Angeles, Baja. But kids being kids didn't bother Ethan at all. So I said to my, my wife, I said, you, you get some sleep. And I'll take Ethan on the set with me today. I'm only working half a day. So I, I took Ethan in, and it was a scene where I was being beaten up by the Japanese soldiers. So the makeup lady was putting, you know, get my eye all red and bruised and lumps here and there and, you know, make me look really awful as if I'd been beaten with rifles. And uh, Ethan was sitting there. He was, he was only about six. And he's looking at me like, like wow. And... The makeup lady said, uh, when I finish your daddy, she said, do you want me to put some stuff on for you? And he went, yeah. (laughs) So I went off and I did the scene and things. I came back and uh, Ethan's got, oh, like cuts here and a brew. He looked a real mess. You know, he was loving it. He was looking in the mirror like, oh, my, wait till I show my mum, you know. So we get in the car to go home and we're driving along and uh, the traffic was really heavy on this side, but clear on our side. And I just saw, we were in a sort of a um, people carrier and I was sitting in the front and Ethan was in the back and I can't remember the driver's name. But um, anyway, I I saw about 100 yards in front, this car pull out and accelerate towards us and it turned out to be a a drunk driver. My driver saw this and he, he started to, try and get away and luckily he didn't hit his head on he just hit hit us sort of three quarters on but the the van went over on its side and rolled over you know that funny it's after a big bump it gets really quiet you know and I I get out the car and I was shouting for Ethan and then he he said I'm okay dad and he'd fallen into the the footwell of the the people carrier and so I pulled him out and he was absolutely fine. But it was lovely because all the traffic stopped and some people came round and a lady and her husband said, we'll, we'll take your little boy 
and he can sit in our car while the police come and things. And eventually the police arrived. And you know what American police are like? They, they're not. A tazier? Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> just a, not really, but um, I nearly got it. Um, but uh, they're not sort of like particularly warm, you know, it's just serious people. And this guy turned up and they arrested the drunken driver. Thank God he was okay. They arrested him and they came up you know, talking to me and my driver who'd he'd broken something. They said, uh, was it just you two in the, the car? And I said, no, my, my son uh, was in the car, but he's fine. And he, he said, uh, where is your son? I said, he's, he's in the car, but he's, he's, he, he fell into the footwell. He's, he's okay. And he went, right, okay. And he walked over to the car. Can you imagine? He's got all this makeup on and this corpse looking in like that. And he starts going, talking in his microphone, you know, and he's looking over at me. And I'm trying to get, it's, it's makeup. Um, yeah, I, I'm an actor, you know, and he's like, I think I'm going to shoot you in a minute, you know? It was, really, it was a difficult moment. And then we're, look, see, it comes off, it comes off this policeman's thing. What the hell's going on here? But it was, um, yeah, we were blessed that day. And it's funny, when, when we left Kauai, uh, it was the same guy that was driving us to the airport. And he, 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 was, he picked us up and we were driving. We'd say goodbye to everyone. He said as he was driving, he said, you know, you shouldn't leave Kauai. I said, what do you mean? He said, you shouldn't leave Kauai. He, he said, Cause, because that crash that we had... And he pointed up to the volcano and he said, you know, this is absolutely seriously. He said, you know, the, the gods live inside that volcano. And that day they looked after you and you should stay here. And I looked at Annie and just for a second we thought, should we just turn around and go back? We didn't, but just for a second, because Annie told me at the same time she thought the same thing. Maybe we should stay. Probably be running Bubba's hamburger bar on the beach. <laughs> yeah. The happiest man in the world. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> You've played a lot of military roles on screen, but you're actually an honorary but you're actually an honorary colonel of the Seventh Scots off screen in real life. How does that work? Um General Bob Bruce invited me to the the uh Royal Regiment of Scotland summer ball about five years ago and uh just as a matter of social courtesy or whatever. And Annie and I went, and we had a lovely evening. And then Bob phoned about a year later, and he said, listen, the Seven Scots, their honorary colonel has just retired. Would you like to to take up that post, you know? And uh, I I was very honoured, you know? So it's it's been a a wonderful thing because I, I go up and visit them and, see them on exercise and all that sort of stuff and support them. Uh, so it's been a great honour. It comes to an end at the end of this year. It's been uh, four years that I've been honorary colonel and it usually only lasts two. Um, but because of COVID, they extended it a bit, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful. That's so cool. So you get quite involved then. Yeah, as much as I can, yeah. And you've got an MBA as well. Does that mean that you got to meet the Queen? Yeah, I did. What? Yeah. I love meeting the Queen's stories. Have you got a meeting the Queen's story? We we waited because, um, you know, like lots of different members of the royal family give them out, you know. But we waited so that it could be at Holyrood and it was going to be the Queen, you know, because I, I did want to meet the Queen. That was, it was, it was a wonderful, 
I want you know you you meet her very briefly, but just to be in in that those circumstances and and to meet someone that's such an iconic figure, you know, it was lovely. It was a great day, great day. I felt very honoured. I don't you know it was as for services to the film industry, but um, you know, lots of people have done more than me. But I was I was very I felt very privileged to have it, you know, and I was I felt very privileged to meet Her Majesty. And I, funnily enough, I got my commission as honorary colonel and she signed it. And it was just a few days before she passed. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But I've got that in my uh, office at home, you know. That's so special. And you've got a BAFTA as well, don't you? Yeah, I've got a Scottish BAFTA, yeah. But they're all, that's all. You don't care? Not, not really. I mean... The, the the whole thing about awards, Andy, is that you're the only person that played that part. Nobody knows how good someone else could have been in that part. You know, so a lot of it is down to chance, luck, opportunity, who you're working with. It's not just about a fantastic performance. You know, there's so many other elements to it. Um, so I'm not too sure about about winning awards, you know. We mentioned earlier about you getting recognised on the streets in India, but you also get recognised when you go out shopping. You got recognised by a young girl in Waitrose, didn't you? I went out to New Zealand to do um, Narnia to play Father Christmas. And I, I was really looking forward to that, that part because I thought it was a, a real... I mean, C.S. Lewis is such a wonderful author and thinker. I felt very privileged to be in anything associated with him. Um, but uh, I went out to New Zealand and spent about four weeks there. And it was Father Christmas only appears very briefly. Uh, but it was really interesting that he was, Father Christmas wasn't the Coca-Cola Father Christmas, you know, in the red suit and all that. He was more the spirit of, of winter, but the, the, the symbol of hope for a coming year, you know that winter was almost over, you know, and he was elemental uh, more than uh, that iconic Coca-Cola thing. Um, so I, I love doing that and, and to be privileged enough to be, to be in a film that children would be watching it and they would think of Father Christmas as the character I played, you know. Um, so I, I really love doing that. And it was about... Six months after it had come out, and obviously I just had scrubby old beard like this one, and I was in Waitrose in Twickenham, and I, I, I was at the cheese counter, and I was looking at all these different, because I, I do like cheese, and uh, I was looking at all these different cheeses. And you know that way you, f you feel that you can feel someone's eyes on you, you know? Yeah. And I looked, and there was a, a wee girl there. She was about maybe seven, something like that. And she was staring at me. And I said, look, like, was your mum anywhere? You know, her mum must have been somewhere. And she was looking at me. And I said, yeah. And she said, you're Father Christmas, aren't you? And I went, okay. and she wandered off to find her mum, you know. But somewhere there's a young woman that's absolutely sure she met Father Christmas in Waitrose. <laughs> A lovely, lovely feeling. <laughs> that is so amazing. Imagine being that child. Imagine being that child and thinking, 
you just met Father Christmas while he was buying cheese at the supermarket. Your mind would just be full of magic. It's lovely, yeah. That's so cool. As far as parts that you've played over the years, is there a role that you've played where you look back now and go, that was my favourite? It's difficult because sometimes you could have such a great time in a film, you know, like Troy, you know, being out in the desert. It was a fabulous experience. I loved it. I just loved it. Somebody gave me a book by Cormac McCarthy called Blood Meridian. And it was written about, it's his masterwork. He sadly passed us a wee while ago. Um, he's a fabulous author. But it's about a, a band of men that go down to get uh, scalps for money in Mexico. It's a descent into hell. It's the most incredible book. And I read it there in the desert and it talks about the desert. It was just the most amazing feeling, you know. But, you know, the film was a film. It was a, it was a good film and met some nice people there. But sometimes the films that you... I, I, I think you can say uh, the level of satisfaction in being in a film is sometimes different to did you enjoy yourself. Sometimes films require that it takes something out of you. But nonetheless, it's a film that you're not proud of but you appreciate being in are there any roles that you've turned down that in hindsight you wish you hadn't because they ended up being huge parts any that are like the ones that got away to be honest andy i don't turn much down no i was looking at your wikipedia it doesn't look like it <laughs> I'm, I'm a sucker for a check <laughs> no i don't i don't i don't think there is you know I, i'd love to say that i i have a mass you know like some actors have a sort of career plan i'm going to do this and then i'll yeah. I'll, I'll go into this and things i've i've just gone down the river of life just been pushed by different currents you're just happy to have a curry and wait for the phone to ring yeah yeah i think i'm a, well maybe it's getting too deep you know but i do i do think go deep that, go deep i don't think um i don't think we're we're here um by chance and i believe you're taken where you should go, you know? And sometimes that's not a good place, and sometimes it's a great place. But I do believe that, you know? And I've just trusted that um, I'll be looked after. And it's, it's happened for me. I know that. Well, there's been some amazing stories on today's interview, and that's why your whiskey is called Story Man, isn't it? I you, guess. Yeah, I guess. Where can people get hold of the whiskey? You can get it online at the moment, and it'll be... In stores, as they say, at some point. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.